Well, good morning again. Um, if you have a, a copy of God's Word there in front of you, go ahead and grab it and uh, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 16 and working to the end of the chapter. As you're turning there, I'll tell you, uh, many of you know I'm uh, currently serving as pastor of Charity Baptist Church full-time and as first grade virtual school teacher part-time. And uh, one of those jobs is about to kill me. I'll let you guess which one. It's the second one. But uh, last Friday, uh, Parker took her first online test, her first online assessment. And it was just a, a, a pre-test. It was on reading comprehension. And you know, the purpose of these initial assessments is just to see how much they know at the beginning of the year. And then later in the year, they'll take a similar test and they'll they'll gauge how much they have learned. And so Parker was taking this online test on, on reading comprehension. But it was on a Friday. Lacey was working. She was off at Cross Point Preschool. She was going to lunch. And I had all three kids at home. So Parker had to take a test. So I put her in my room and shut the door. I put Chandler and Tripp in front of Disney Plus and just hoped for the best. Like, that was the best I could do. Just hope nobody breaks anything. Hope nobody's bleeding when this is over. And I sat in there with Parker as she, as she took the test. You know, I was, I was hoping that, that the test would fall during Tripp's nap. I was hoping the test would happen after Lacey returned home from work. But as fate would have it, Parker went right in the eye of the storm. And for the most part, as I'm, I'm in there with her, just in case she's having any computer trouble, she did pretty well. Um, she, she's, a very good, she's very good at reading. She's not great at reading comprehension. And one of her answers was just hilariously wrong. The question was, the ball was larger and blank than expected. And so Parker read it perfectly. She said, the ball was larger than blank, or larger and blank than expected. Now the options were A, heavier, B, bouncier, C, angrier. So, so we know A is the best answer. B makes sense, and C makes no sense. And so Parker read every word perfectly, sounded it out perfectly, stared at it a few moments, and then marked C. The ball was larger and angrier than expected. She read the words, but she couldn't understand the context. And so this morning, we're going to talk about a word that we certainly know, a word that we certainly talk about all the time, but a word that we don't always understand. And that word is, is joy. Do you know one of the, the most repeated commands in the Bible is centered, are centered on the concept of joy? God tells us more than anything else in a variety of ways to be happy, to be joyful. He says things like praise the Lord, rejoice, give thanks, do not be afraid. All of these are commands in essence for us to be happy. You know, not when you get to heaven one day, not when your circumstances improve, not when the dark clouds finally move from your house right now. God wants you to experience joy today and every day. And so this morning, we're, we're going to pick back up as Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure, and we'll see four characteristics of joy in Christ. And so let's start reading together in verse 16. Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. Again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? 
a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? So let's stop there for a second. So the disciples are naturally confused by what Christ says in verse 16. He said, In a little while you'll see me no longer, but in a little while you'll see me. So you'll see me no longer, but you'll see me. Now, now, two things here. In the South, we understand the little while can mean any amount of time, right? Anywhere from two minutes to two years, almost, in the South. Little while can mean anything. So that's, that's adding to their confusion. Also, on the other side of redemptive history, we understand what Christ is saying. That in a little while, in a few hours, he'll be crucified. And then in a little while, in a few days, he will be resurrected. And so we have the picture, uh, the, the ability to piece this together because we can see the full picture. But the disciples don't have that full picture. And so they're deeply concerned. They ask, what is this that he's saying to us? Now, what is he talking about? A little while we'll see him no longer. A little while we'll, we'll see him. And we see in verses 17 and 18, that their, their primary concern on the eve of the crucifixion is their dwindling time with their teacher. Notice how many times John uses the phrase a little while in 16 through 19. Christ says it twice in verse 16. The disciples repeat it twice in verse 17. John repeats their basic question in verse 18, and then Christ circles back to it two more times in verse 19. And so as the disciples struggled with their reality, Christ could sense their sorrow, he could sense their anxiety. He could sense their worry. He knew they had questions. He knew they had concerns about where he was going and how long he would be gone. And so in the rest of our text, in verses 20 through 33, Christ launched into further explanation. Christ answered some questions that they didn't even know to ask. And during their time in the, in the upper room and in the garden, Christ passed along devastating news to them. He said, I'll be betrayed. I will be crucified, and you will be persecuted. And he didn't present these things to them as possibilities. He didn't say, hey, this may happen. He presented these as certainties. This will happen. And so as Christ wrapped up his time of, of formal instruction, he struck a much-needed positive note. He promised them in spite of their circumstances, they would experience the fullness of joy. And their joy in him would transcend every dark and depressing day that was coming on the horizon. And so let's read the rest of this passage and look at, at four characteristics of this joy in Christ. So Jesus continues in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. In that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. 
I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly, not just using figurative speech. Now we know all the things, do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me alone, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So four characteristics of the joy that we experience in Christ. First, our joy is revealed in times of sorrow. Did you notice in verse 20 that Christ's pep talk starts in an unusual way? He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, on the one hand, I'm sure when the disciples look back on this moment, they were grateful that, that Christ was, was honest with them. And they were grateful for this blunt honesty in the days ahead. You know, when I'm flying on an airplane, I'm always appreciative when a captain warns me about coming turbulence. Have you ever been on an airplane and hit turbulence and they didn't tell you? Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. It's happened to me twice, and both times, my heart sank down into my stomach, and I said, okay, this is how I'm going to go. This is how I'm going to die. I've got five minutes. Who can I call real quick and tell them that I love them? You know, I'm going down the list in my mind. And so, on one hand, the disciples definitely appreciated the heads up, but on the other hand, you know, Christ is, was really beating this drum of, of their coming suffering a lot down the stretch. I mean, he's really honest with them in these final hours together. He tells them, you will weep and lament. And if that's not bad enough, the world will rejoice. You're going to cry, and the world is going to celebrate. But notice at the end of verse 20, he tells them these emotional states won't last. He promises them, your sorrow will turn to joy. On the day of the crucifixion, the disciples experienced sorrow while the world experienced joy. But then on the day of the resurrection, those, those emotions flip-flop. The disciples experienced joy and the world experienced sorrow. The empty tomb flip-flopped their emotions. And so we need to see here that, that sorrow and joy can be connected to one another. I've mentioned to you a number of times that, that during this season I've watched a lot of Disney Plus, and some of it's just for my sanity, just to put the kids in front of the TV for a minute just so I can catch my breath. Matt knows what I'm talking about. And, and so I, I've, I've done this from time to time, and one of the movies that's on there is Pixar movies called Inside Out, and Inside Out is this beautiful parable about the connection between sadness and joy. And the setting of the movie, strangely enough, is inside the mind of an 11-year-old girl named Riley, where her five basic emotions control her actions. Joy, sadness, fear, disgust, and anger. And joy acts as the leader. And joy's primary objective is to limit the influence of sadness. 
And when Riley's family moves to San Francisco and moves away from her hometown and all of her family and friends, Joy works overtime to keep Riley from getting into sadness. But ultimately, her efforts are ineffective, and eventually, Riley becomes sad. Eventually, Riley tearfully confesses to her parents, I don't like it here. I miss our home. I miss our life in Minnesota. I don't like living in San Francisco. I want to go back to Minnesota. But when she does that, something interesting happens. Her parents comfort her. They drop down on their knees, they, they wrap her in a hug, and they admit that they miss their hometown too. And so with the support of her family, over time, Riley adapts to her new home. She makes new friends. She acquires new hobbies. And eventually, her sadness turns to joy. And so the fundamental lesson of this movie is that often our greatest joys arise out of our deepest moments of sorrow. You know, we'd love for every exit ramp in life to be joyful. We'd love for every day, every, every hour, every minute to be joyful, but sometimes we have to walk through the valley to get back to the mountaintop. You now, Jesus provides this illustration in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I don't want to speak out of turn here, okay? Because there was one time that I used Parker's birth as a sermon illustration, and Lacey scolded me for sharing far too much information. So I'm not going to wade too deep into these waters. But I will say, I will say, that I imagine most women would prefer skipping pregnancy and labor and fast-forwarding to holding their newborn babies. I imagine if you approached a woman and said, you can bypass the morning sickness, the discomfort, the swollen ankles, and the contractions. And you can just have your baby right now. Most are going to take that deal. But we know it doesn't work that way. You don't get the newborn without the nine-month process. But notice what Christ says at the end of the verse. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Well, why not? Because of the joy that she experienced from holding that baby, from the joy that she experienced of bringing a new life into the world. Understand that after the baby is born, the pain of pregnancy isn't forgotten. It just doesn't matter anymore. And so in the same way, the disciples couldn't get the joy without experiencing the sorrow first. And their sorrow was watching Jesus beaten and bruised. Their sorrow was watching him hang on the cross. Their sorrow was watching his lifeless body removed from the tree and carried to a tomb. Their sorrow was watching the world rejoice while they wept. But their sorrow was necessary because Christ died so they could live. Their sorrow was temporary and their joy would be eternal. The second thing we see is that our joy is resistant to every attack. At the end of verse 22, Jesus told the disciples, no one is going to take your joy from you. And we see this come to fruition in Acts 5. So, so keep your place in John 16 and flip over to Acts 5 really quick. It's, it's the next book in the Bible. So in Acts 5, after the early church has got off to an incredible start, Christ gives them the commission. Peter preaches at Pentecost. 3,000 are saved that day. The first church is established, and, 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 and they're just off to an incredible start. They hit their first snag in chapter 4. In chapter 4, 
Peter and John are formally threatened by the Jewish leadership. They charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And when the two disciples refuse, they, they threaten them further. And then we get to chapter 5. We see these tensions reach a boiling point. The disciples had continued their ministry. The religious establishment had become frustrated. And the high priest had thrown all 12 disciples in prison. And they're awaiting trial for they're awaiting trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, in the middle of the night, as they're waiting for that next morning, an angel of the Lord breaks them out of jail and tells them, return to the temple and start preaching. You know, go back to the public square and, and do what God has called you to do. And that event sets up a, a humorous moment at the expense of the religious leaders. Now, I want you to picture this for a second. You have, you have the Sanhedrin coming together, the most powerful men in Israel. They come together from all over the region. They put on their fancy robes and their fancy hats. And they go to their assigned seats, you know, and they shake hands with one another and they settle in. And the high priest nods to the guards. And they're, they're ready to, to, uh, to hold court with these pesky disciples. But the guards find empty sails. Look at verse 25. Someone comes in screaming, Look! The men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now the high priest has lost control of the situation. He is furious. They go and they grab him. Skip down to verse 27. And when they, they brought them, they sent them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We charged you not to teach in the name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood Upon us. And so we see the high priest's deep seated fear of losing control over the people. He could feel his influence slipping away. Now we told you not to do this, yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And then also he took great offense to the disciples' insistence that Christ's blood was on his hands. And so he threatened them, and he'd already threatened them. At this point, he's willing to use any means necessary to stop the spread of the gospel. Yet the disciples continue to fill Jerusalem with their teaching. And they explain why in verse 29. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So as their situation became more and more dangerous, the disciples had two options in front of them. They could stop. You know, they could scale back. They could take their ministry underground. Or they could double down. And ultimately they chose the latter. They continued to boldly proclaim the gospel because they wanted to obey God rather than men. They stared down the council and proclaimed, we are witnesses to his sinless life, to his, his atoning death and his victorious resurrection, and we're never going to stop talking about it. No matter what you say to us, no matter how you threaten us, no matter what you do to us, we are never going to stop talking about it. You know, in the three circles evangelism method that the North American Mission Board uses, it's, it's a method for sharing the gospel, that they, talk, they talk about the concept of, of green lights, yellow lights, and red lights in gospel conversations. And, and, and basically, a green light is a person who's open to the gospel. 
A yellow light is a person that is, is, is cautious about the gospel. And then a red light, as you can guess, is someone who's completely closed off to the gospel. Someone that you're not making any traction with. And you just need to, to tell them that God loves them and wish them a good day, right? Now, I would imagine the high priest is probably one of the reddest lights in history. Like, he wasn't just opposed to the gospel. The gospel made his blood boil. But the disciples proclaimed the good news to him anyway because God doesn't call us to share the gospel with some. He calls us to share the gospel with all. And because their message was so soul-piercingly sharp, the council became enraged and wanted to kill them. But fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, and, and based on the advice of an older council member, they decided that another round of public execution wouldn't be great for their brand. So instead, they decided to flog them. And after they whipped them, they sent them away, and they ordered them again not to speak in the name of Jesus. But look at verse 41. The council hoped their punishment would halt the enthusiasm of the disciples, but it didn't. In fact, it, it rejuvenated them. Verse 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So think about this. Over the course of 48 hours, they've been thrown in prison, threatened with death, and taken to the whipping post, and yet they walked away from these experiences rejoicing. They were, they were joyful. They were happy to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's sake. If that's no one being able to take, not take your, no one being able to take your joy, I don't know what is. So here's a question for us. If the disciples consistently found joy in the midst of their scarcity and affliction, then why do we sometimes struggle to find joy in the midst of our abundance and ease? You know, the short answer is that we're looking for joy in the wrong places. And far too often, our joy is dictated by our emotions. And our emotions are dictated by our circumstances. And this leaves us riding on an emotional roller coaster. But Christ has a better way. Christ promises if you trust Him, if you follow Him, if you walk in deeper relationship with Him, you will have everlasting joy. And no hurtful person, no difficult situation, no bad break, nothing can take that joy away from you. What else in this life offers that same guarantee? You know, gossip and slander take your self-esteem. Dishonesty can take your trust. Economic recession can take your wealth. Thieves can take your possessions. Disease can take your health. And death can take your life. But Christ guarantees if you live out and share the gospel, your joy cannot be stolen. Third, we see in verse 23, our joy is refreshed through answered prayer. Verse 23, Christ says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy may be full. So we're reminded again here that the disciples are about to experience a change in their relationship with Jesus. After the ascension, they'll no longer speak to him. 
they'll be able to, to take their request directly to the Father. We read this at the start of our service, but you know the author of, of, of Hebrews describes this privilege pretty well. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the, by the li- new and living way that opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now we should never overlook the fact that the God of the universe hears our prayers. That he hears our requests, he hears our petitions, he hears our complaints, he hears our groanings, he hears our praises. Now, now we should clarify, because this, this verse can be taken out of context, we should clarify that he hears everything, but he doesn't give everything. Right? When we pray in Christ's name, our prayer must ask for God to move in a manner worthy that's consistent with his character. You know, if our prayer stands in contradiction with who Christ is, what Christ taught, or what Christ stands for, then God will not fulfill that prayer. You see, in Jesus' name is not a, a necessary phrase to in, ensure that our request will be heard. It's not that if you don't say in Jesus' name that God won't hear what you have to say. And in Jesus' name is not an extra boost of effectiveness. And in Jesus' name is not a way of, of forcing God's hand. Instead, praying in Jesus' name means operating within the scope of God's will, keeping the focus on Christ's glory. Now, Jesus continues, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And this is crucial for us. How does answered prayer make our joy overflow? Because if we're honest, sometimes prayer feels more like duty than delight. But prayer is how we communicate with Christ. And Christ is our source of joy. Prayer does two things for us. Now, first, prayer gives us the power to do what God is calling us to do. You know, we recognize that God's standard for us is really high. If we read in Scripture what's required of us, I mean, it, it's overwhelming. We're called to pursue holiness, to, to be thankful, to practice repentance, to give generously, to speak boldly, to live selflessly, among other things. We have to recognize that we can't live God-honoring lives through sheer determination or, or white-knuckle discipline. Our only hope of living by God's design is with God's help. So we pray. And second, prayer gives us the perspective to see how God is working in us and around us. You know, if you ever kept a, a prayer journal, have you ever taken the time to, to write down your daily requests and just look back at them and see what God's doing in your life? It's really an overwhelming experience if you do it. I don't do it nearly as often as I should, but for the last several months, Lacey and I have been participating in a, a small group with two other couples, and we've been meeting on, on Zoom every other week, and at the end of each session, we'll spend a few minutes praying for one another. You know, before our last meeting, I was flipping through our workbook, and it's like five minutes before, and I'm trying to answer the last few questions because that's how I operate. And I'm flipping through the workbook, and I come to the back of the workbook where we have our prayer requests, and I glance at those prayer requests. And they're prayer requests that we've, we've prayed one another over a span of three months. 
And I was amazed at how many of these things God had answered over those three months. And they weren't these, these huge things. You know, some of them were like help with potty training and things like that. But for me, that's big, okay? <laughs> so, but, but we saw over and over again how God had worked in the midst of our group. You know, a Christ follower is a lot like an under, underground well. And no matter the weather outside, a well will be full of water. But when heavy rains come, a well will overflow. And likewise, no matter the circumstances, the Christ follower always has Christ. But when the answered prayers come, when the fruit of ministry comes, when you can see God working in your life, the believer's joy overflows. When we see God working through us, we see God working in us, when we see God working around us, we experience His joy. And so that's three. And here's our last one. Finally, our joy is rooted in Christ's finished work. Now, if you look at verses uh, 25 through 32, I'd love to dig into this, but um, my wife has been coaching me and saying, Bo, you don't have to dig into every single verse every single time. So we're going to do the bird's eye view of 25 through 32. But in 25 through 32, the son mentioned the father six times. He reminds the disciples of their, their reconciled relationship with the heavenly father. And when sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, fellowship between the creator and the creation was lost. Holy God cannot exist in the presence of a sinful humanity. And this divide, this divide was insurmountable until Christ gave us an opportunity for peace. So let's look at verse 33 together and read it again. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have tribulation. Some other translations say trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And what a beautiful promise for us. What Christ said in the garden and what Christ did on the cross was for the purpose of establishing peace between us and God. Now Christ did the heavy lifting on our behalf. You know, he loved us first and, and his love for us carried him all the way to Calvary. But when he overcame the grave, he put the ball in our court. He essentially said, if you want peace, if you want joy, if you want soul satisfaction in this life, if you want hope, then repent of your sin and follow me. You know, Adoniram Judson was one of the first American missionaries. Some say he was the first American missionary. He left his homeland in 1812 for South Asia. He was 25 years old. But before Judson leveraged his life for the gospel, he struggled to find peace with God. You know, he experienced a little bit of a, a significant faith crisis in early adulthood. He was raised in a Christian home, but like so many young men do, when he went away to college, when he started his studies at Brown University, he was lured away from the faith. And his, his faith crisis was centered on a close friend named Jacob Eames. Eames was a philosophy student, and Eames rejected all organized religion. He didn't believe the Bible was true. He didn't believe God was real. And when Eames and Judson connected with one another as friends, Eames gave Judson a hard time about his beliefs. And eventually, Judson's already fragile faith foundation crumbled under the pressure of his friends' intellectual assaults. And so Judson became a skeptic. 
Vikings. But he kept his newfound skepticism hidden from his family until after his graduation. On his 20th birthday, August 9th, 1808, he threw a wet blanket on the family celebration as they were celebrating his accomplishment of graduating valedictorian Brown University by making two announcements. I'm no longer a Christian, and I'm moving to New York City to become a playwright. While living in New York, Judson quickly found little fulfillment and satisfaction in his new career. He quickly became disillusioned. He started searching for something more. For a season, he was restless. He started recognizing he didn't have peace in his life. The Holy Spirit was, was working his heart. And then one night, everything changed for him. He was traveling through a small town. He stopped in a local inn for the night. And the only available room was next door to a man who was dying. And the man the, in the, that he was sharing a wall with wasn't dying peacefully or quietly. For the entire night, Judson heard this man groan and cry in desperation. And Judson was so tormented by the sounds coming from the next room, he didn't sleep a wink. And as he laid awake in bed, he wondered, is this man prepared for death? No, that's what's coming. He's thinking, what I'm hearing over there, this guy's not going to see the morning. Is he prepared for what comes next? And his outward focus then shifted inward, and he started asking himself, am I prepared for death? You know, his philosophy had taught him that death was nothing. You know, death was natural. Death was an open door into an empty pit. Death was a return to non-existence. But these theories brought him little comfort as he listened to another man dying. But even then at the same time, Judson was, was convicted by the mocking voice of his friend Jacob Eames. He could hear his voice in his head, Are you really this weak, Judson? Are you really this worried? Aren't you the valedictorian of the Brown University and you are, are anxious about death? But Judson could not move past the groans coming from the next room. And so for the rest of the night, he bounced back and forth between fearing death, being ashamed for fearing death, and then finally, the night ended. And sunlight started pouring into his room and his cloud of despair was lifted and Judson felt ashamed for showing such Weakness. When the sun came up, he felt better. So he got dressed, he went downstairs, he went to the front desk, and he asked the clerk, has the man in the room next door to mine gotten better? And the clerk simply replied, he's dead. And so Judson politely asked a follow-up question. Do you know his name? Do you know who he was? Can we contact his family? And the attendant said, oh, yes. He was a young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames. Jacob Eames. Judson could hardly move. He was completely frozen. He didn't leave the lobby of the inn for the rest of the day. He couldn't believe those screams of misery and despair were coming from his old friend. He'd later reflect on that moment and write, Lost. In death, Jacob Eames was lost, utterly lost, lost to his friends, to the world, to the future. 
Lost is a puff of smoke, is lost in the affinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning, but suppose Eames was mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true. Suppose God was real. For that hell should open that country in and snatch Jacob Eames, my dearest friend and God, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not, be coincidence. And so from that morning forward, Judson trusted Christ. From that morning forward, Judson found peace with God. He didn't just believe in the gospel, he suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. For nearly 40 years, from age 25 to his death, he served as a missionary to Burma. When he arrived, the country was predominantly Buddhist, and they didn't exactly roll out the red carpet for Christian missionaries. He didn't see a single convert for his first six years. He lived in constant fear of being arrested because sharing the gospel was illegal. He lost his wife. He lost several children. He was in prison in harsh conditions for 20 months during the Anglo-Burmese War. At any point, Judson would have been completely justified in giving up on Burma. He would have been completely justified in saying, My family and I have suffered enough. We are moving back home. But he didn't. He persevered, and at the end of his life, he left behind 7,000 Burmese believers, several church plants, and a copy of the Bible in their native language. Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. You'll have trouble. You will suffer. You will hurt. You will die. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. And so it's because of Christ's work in the present, that in the past, that we can experience joy in the present. The cross changes everything. From your attitude this week to your address in eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these reminders from, from Christ. Lord, we know that the disciples were going through serious separation, anxiety, and fear, and, and worry about what comes next. And Lord, at different places in our lives, we've experienced similar feelings. Where we've been anxious, we've been fearful, we've been worried. We've been restless. But Father, we know that, that Christ came so that we may have peace. We know Christ died on the cross so we may have peace. And so Father, my, my prayer for everyone over the, under the sound of my voice, anyone tuning in on Facebook Live, anyone who listens to this podcast on podcasts later, that they have peace with the Lord. But they have that peace that Judson found. Lord, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending your son to overcome the world, to destroy sin and death, to restore fellowship between a sinful people and a holy God.
Father, it's a debt that we can never repay. But Lord, I, I, I hope that we would be a church that would, would leverage our lives for this gospel. So help us to do that. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.